0: Uh, We are now coming to the end of Mark and we learned very beginning back in the beginning of September when we started this series that Mark was writing to a a group of people, a group of believers in first century Rome, the church there. And it it was a good church. It was a growing church. This was a group of people that were following Christ no matter the cost. And that idea of the cost was not hypothetical for them. That uh, They had lost jobs. They had lost family and friends. As a matter of fact, can you imagine gathering together in a worship service just like this? Man, we're singing and praising and just enjoying fellowship. Could you imagine being in this room and every one of us knew somebody, maybe a family member that had been killed for the cause of Christ Recently? because that that's what it would have been like when they gathered in Rome. They they had they had paid that price for following Christ. And yet would you believe, the cost was going up. It, not that they hadn't done enough, the cost for going up as as Nero was coming into his emperorship and, and they, we were getting into the mid and late 60s and he was going insane, man, the, the persecution against the against the church got stronger. Uh it, it got more fierce and there was even more of a cost. For following Christ. And so Mark writes this gospel r- really with just one reason after another of why Christ is worth it. He is writing this gospel to embolden, to encourage those believers that, hey, wherever, leading Christ, wherever following Christ leads you, whatever it costs you, hold on to him. He is worth it. And, and, and he just starts building these reasons. Chapter 1, verse 1. The very first line says, he's the son of God. Yeah, that's a pretty good person to follow. If you're going to follow somebody and it's going to cost you, how about it be God? And that's how he's introduced to us. And we go from there. Remember that that series of messages where we saw the authority of Christ, the power of Christ in the physical realm? Then in the in the spiritual realm and then in the realm of death, all of this, his authority and his power makes him worthy of being followed. And yet, after spending literally weeks on his authority and on his power, man, we've also seen he's kind. This one we follow is is kind. He is compassionate. He forgives sins. A, a, a need that every single one of us has. We saw that this one we follow is not only worth it for all these other reasons, but he knows the end. Man, if you're if you're following something, that's just a, a very logistical need that you have. Does he know where he's going? Does he know what's up ahead? Does he know how to successfully navigate that? Well, what we learn is Jesus certainly knows what's up ahead. And when we get to the end, he's on the throne. Another very good reason. Follow this one because when it's all said and done, he rules and he reigns. And so this is the kind of evidences that we've been piling on top of one another. I've said a couple of times, you know, just one of these things, any one message, any one thing we've seen in the gospel of Mark all by itself is worthy of a first century believer following Christ, worthy of a a 21st century believer, right? You and me following him. And yet Mark hasn't given us, God hasn't given us just one reason, but re- reason piled on top of reason. But as we come to today and we open Mark 14 and 15, folks, I think perhaps we do come to a reason that stands out, a, a reason that stands above, a reason that stands alone, that the content of Mark 14 and 15 is our Faith, it is our hope, it is our very life. Without the work being described in Mark 14 and 15, you and I remain enslaved to sin, enslaved to death, enslaved to hell. That means when we die a physical death, we never cease to be, but when we have our physical death, we go into a godless eternity of suffering, separated from God. Ah, but Mark 14 and 15 shares with you and me, talks with you and me about a way to be rescued from that, a work that has been done so that that is not our future. Let's see how that is described. Would you turn with me this morning to Mark 14 and 15? You'll find Mark, uh, second book of the New Testament, right after Matthew, right before Luke and John. Mark 14 and 15, these are two uh, actually very long chapters. I am not going to read the entirety of them, but I am going to try to read sections of both of these chapters so we can kind of get a feel for what they are communicating. So Mark 14, let me begin in verse 12. Mark 14, verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the day the Passover lambs were sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover supper? So Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem to make arrangements. As you go into the city, he told them, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is the place. Go ahead and prepare our supper there. So the two disciples went on ahead into the city and found everything, as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover supper there. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve disciples. As they were sitting around the table eating, Jesus said, The truth is, one of you will betray me. One of you who is here eating with me. Greatly distressed, one by one they began to ask him, I'm not the one, am I? He replied, It is one of you twelve. Who is eating with me now for I, the son of man must die as the scriptures declared long ago, but how terrible it will be for my betrayer far better for him. If he had never been born as they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread and asked God's blessing on it. Then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, take it. This is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood poured out for many, sealing the covenant between God and his people. I solemnly declare that I will not drink wine again until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Verse 32, and they came to an olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James and John with him and he began to be filled with horror and deep distress. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. He went on a little farther and he fell down on the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass by. Abba, father, he said. Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will, not mine. Verse 53, Jesus was led to the high priest's home where the leading priest, other leaders, and teachers of religious law had gathered. Verse 60, then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? Jesus made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, "'Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed God?' Jesus said, "'I am, and you will see me, "'the son of man, sitting at God's right hand "'in the place of power and coming back "'on the clouds of heaven.' The high priest tore his clothing to show his horror, and He said, "'Why do we need any other witnesses? "'You've all heard this blasphemy. "'What is your verdict?' They all condemned him to death. Then some of them began to to spit at him, and they blindfolded him, and they hit his face with their fist. Who hit you that time, you prophet? They jeered. And even the guards were hitting him as they led him away. Chapter 15, verse 15. So Pilate, anxious to please the crowd, released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead tipped whip. Then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to crucify him. The soldiers took him into their headquarters and they called out to the entire battalion. They dressed him in a purple robe and they made a crown of long sharp thorns and put it on his head. Then they saluted yelling, hail king of the Jews. And they beat him on the head with a stick and spit on him and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. They led him away to be crucified. Verse 25. It was nine o'clock in the morning when the crucifixion took place. A signboard was fastened to the cross above Jesus' head. Announcing the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two criminals were crucified with him. Their crosses on either side of his. And the people passing by shouted abuse. Shaking their heads in mockery. Ha ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. Oh, you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, can you? Well, then save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priest and teachers of the religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Verse 33. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at that time, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 37, then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, Truly, this was the Son of God. Our story begins making it very clear that we're in the midst of Passover, Passover week, Passover day, Passover begins. We know, many of you know, from way back in the Old Testament in Exodus, God had gone to deliver his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And in doing that, in bringing that deliverance, he also brought judgment on Egypt for, his, for their abuse of his people, for their idolatry. He brought 10 plagues, 10 judgments of his wrath on this nation. The 10th one being the death of the firstborn in every home. Every home in an entire nation would experience the death of the firstborn and as that night was approaching, God gave his people a, 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 a supper that they were to have. And it would be a supper where, where everything on the table had a meaning, had a purpose. It was, it was a part of a story. And a centerpiece of this, of this supper would be this lamb, this Passover lamb. And in sacrificing it and preparing it, of course, blood comes out of that lamb and they would, they would gather up that blood and they would take that blood and they would, they would wipe it across the door, the frame of the door. And that night when the death angel came over the land of Egypt, when the death angel came upon a house that was under the blood, he passed over, bringing rescue, deliverance, salvation to that home. And now from that moment on, folks, a a, a celebration like you would think of our Thanksgiving or our our Christmas. A celebration ensued where, where every year they would remember. They would remember that God saved them. They would remember that God had delivered them. They would remember that they needed God's salvation. And again, it was a very carefully scripted moment. Everything on the table had meaning. And, and they would go through this script and they would celebrate it year after year after year for over a thousand years. As we read the Old Testament, we know there was times of unfaithfulness. There, there was literally hundreds of years that would pass and, and no Passover would be celebrated but by time we come to the time of Jesus, the, the Passover was back being celebrated and had been for several hundred years. Very loyal, very dedicated, the Jewish people to celebrating that Passover. And, and, and again, as they went into that moment, everything had meaning, everything had purpose. Very careful script that they would be following. You know, if you think about it, folks, we have some some national traditions I mean, believer, unbeliever alike kind of celebrate Thanksgiving, kind of celebrate Christmas the same way, don't we? We've we've got very similar traditions. I mean, a turkey ends up being the center of a lot of this, doesn't it? And and yet, as much as we are all doing the same thing on the fourth Thursday in, in November or on December 25th, we also have each our own little traditions in our home, don't we? We monkey with it a little bit. We tweak it a little bit. Oh, we don't, we've never done turkey. We do. And and there's probably a family in here. You don't do turkey on that day. You've got something else. Oh, our family, we open presents here. Oh, our family, we open it here. And we've we got our little things we do. There's There's these national holidays. A lot of tradition guides all of us to doing mostly the same thing. And yet our families will do these each unique things. Now, now what I just described couldn't be any further from the truth with Passover. You you did not tweak Passover. You you didn't add your little family moment to it, your little family way of doing that. Very carefully followed script. You could walk into any home in Israel, any family that was celebrating the Passover, and you would hear the exact same thing going on. Now, I, I, I share that for this reason. Folks, as they were around the table that night and, and Jesus started approaching this moment and he deviates from the script, man, man they would have been, what, what, what's happening here? They would have been shocked. They would have been alert. They would have been like, where is he going with this? As he started to give new meaning to the bread at the table and the cup at the table. As he totally didn't talk about the centerpiece of the Passover he, he didn't talk about the lamb at all because on this night something was going to change and it would never again be about the lamb on the table it was going to be about the lamb at the table Jesus Christ the lamb of God We would no longer come under the blood of a lamb for a temporary relief from sin and guilt. But we would come under the lamb of God for eternal relief and eternal rescue from our sin and our guilt. Oh, folks, do you realize that as we come to this table, we're not just celebrating our rescue We've been so much more than rescued by this blood. We are declared holy. By this blood, we are adopted as children of God. By this blood, we become co-heirs. Imagine this thought. I'm a co-heir. I stand there before God as an equal with Jesus Christ to receive an inheritance. That's what the blood of Jesus Christ does. Folks, as we go through this moment... You know, we read these passages and it's just words. And we got to unwrap the words. We got to understand the words. But boy, that was not the case for them. Everything that Jesus said just exploded with imagery. It was just vivid with pictures of, of things they had seen, of things they had done. When he starts talking about a broken body, when he starts talking about spilled blood... When we get to 1420, uh, chapter 14 verse 25, and there's a little line there we just kind of run right on by. I will not drink of the wine again until the kingdom of God. That's covenant language. That was the language of a very serious, a very significant promise. That's not language we use. That's not how we make promises. But throughout the Bible, you see this. As a matter of fact, we're not going to go there now. But you can go to Acts 23 and see a great story where a group of people come together for the and promise each other, we're going to kill Paul. And you know what they how they make the promise? We're not going to eat. We're not going to drink again until he's dead. So when Jesus is saying that line, what he's introducing to them is a covenant. An oath. It's hard to relate that to something in our society. About the, about the strongest binding we have is a contract. But we, but we can break contracts. Ah, it takes a lawyer, it takes some money, but we can get out of contracts. You didn't get out of a covenant. You, you couldn't get out of a covenant. We sign contracts with a pen. You can get an 89 cent pen and with that ink you've signed a contract. A covenant was struck with blood. Now folks, here's what a covenant would look like. Now start, remember what we've just read and what you've heard. I know many of you have been in church for years and you've gone through this little exercise of the body broken and the blood spilled. But but that's not what they were picturing. You gotta see that. So here's Jesus saying, listen, I'm going to do a work. I'm going to do something for you to rescue you. I promise you I'm going to fulfill this. And, and, and I won't drink again until it is fulfilled and you're with me in the kingdom of God. Now in that kind of covenant, and that kind of promise, what anybody would do making that kind of covenant is they would kill, they would sacrifice an animal. They, w- they would cut it in half, not, not this way, but this way. They would, they would cut the animal in half. They would lay it open, a piece of the animal here, a piece of the animal here. Well, as you can imagine, and it, imagine most of us have not seen something like this. But as the animal's laying open, well, the, there's lots of blood. And it's pooling to the center between these two halves. And then the one making the promise walks through the animal. And you can imagine the blood is, is splashing up on your on their shoes it's it's splashing up on the hem of their garment and and as you walk through you would repeat your promise you would repeat your your covenant oath you think man that's kind of gory isn't it just a a little over the top for making a promise huh but you know what that was the point a person doing this, making this kind of covenant when he when he or she walked through what they're saying is listen if I don't fulfill my promise if I don't come through then may what happened to this animal happen to me. And yet folks there's something very special about the language of Christ here because he's not making a promise that somewhere out there you'll be saved and and if I don't fulfill this may I pay with my life. No, he's saying, with my life, I will fulfill this promise. The the, the threat of walking through the animal was not something that could happen if he didn't fulfill his promise. It was how he was going to fulfill the promise. And so, folks, the imagery that Jesus is portraying here, when he says, take this bread, it's broken. They would envision his body being broken. Half of his body laying here, half of it laying here The cup is my blood pulling to the center. Christ is the animal broken in half. Christ is the animal that's sacrificed and bleeding. And it's God the Father walking with his feet through the blood of his own son to make a covenant with you. I cannot for the life of me imagine Walking, don't want to imagine. It's gross, it's sick. Walking through the blood of my own child. God did not make that walk because he loved you more than his son. He did not. God did not make that walk because he valued you more than his own son. He did not. But he walked through that blood making this covenant. Because this is the only body. And this is the only blood that could do it. That could rescue you and me from sin and death and hell. Thank you. (laughs) What do you say to Jesus if you're at the table? And he expresses this kind of love. He, he, he gives you this kind of gesture. Thank you. Jump up and give him a hug, a kiss. Run out and get a gift. As Jesus got up from the table, we know how we responded. Because there's nothing different about you and me and the 12 guys around that table. There's nothing different about you and me and the guards and everybody there on the hill that day. After expressing that gesture of love, we abandoned him, betrayed him, mocked him. Do you hear how many times it said people spit on him? Over and over they spit on the one who just expressed this kind of love for, you, for us. And then they horrifically, torturously, violently beat him. And nailed him to a cross. Have you ever wondered why did it have to be so torturous, so ongoing? I mean, okay, Jesus has to die for our sins. Okay, I get that. But couldn't a spear through the heart real quick? It's done and it's over. Why, Why the ongoing, this long protracted torture and violent death? Because that's what you and I needed to see. Even to this day, we who count on this blood, we who believe in him and follow him, still struggle with justifying our sin. Still struggle with trying to make our our sins small and insignificant. Do you want to know how small and insignificant your sin is? Look at the cross. Folks, the cross is a picture of how holy he is, how holy unholy we are and the effort the work the sacrifice it took to reconcile that gap it had to be that violent that horrific so that you and I could never look at that and think well I can I can clean up my own mess I, I can I can cover my own sin folks the cross is the way it is so that you and I would look at it in utter humility Recognizing there's nothing I can do to fix my problem with God, but come under the blood of the Lamb of God. We come now to our Lord's table. Somewhat like the Passover, each piece has meaning. Like the Passover, we come to this because periodically you and I need to stop our craziness, our wildness, our running around, our sin. We need to stop and we need to remember. Wow, a really high price was paid so that I could follow Christ. Gosh, we're talking about can I follow Christ and pay that pr-? So that you can follow Christ. This price was paid. We're going to have a, a little bit of time. There's some time in between the deacons handing the stuff out. And when I get up and lead us through taking the elements. And, and I believe the scripture gives us some guidance on how we use it. It'll just be a few moments, three, three, four minutes. But the scripture guides how you and I might use that three or four minutes. It says that as we come to this moment, be still be silent it says to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith use this time to confess sin are there places in my life in your life where we really have not done a good job of remembering What's been done for us, of acknowledging what's been done for us. If we had remembered, if we were acknowledging, I wouldn't have said that yesterday. I wouldn't have thought like that this week. I wouldn't have acted that way. How can I rightly celebrate it and enjoy it when I'm living and acting in ways that mock it? And so it's a, a time I like to think of it when we're entering a sacred business moment. It's a sacred and a holy moment for you to do business with God and to let Him lead you in what needs to happen in this moment. Is it praise? Is it thanksgiving? Is it confession? Maybe a time that you would just kind of rededicate, refocus yourself on following Christ. Boy, that following Christ is such a, a big and sometimes nebulous term. Bring that down. If you're using this time to say, hey, God, I really want to be better at faithfully following you and living for you, think about what would that look like this week? Maybe you would kind of know where you're going in an appointments in, in job and in, in school, you know, some things that, what will it look like to follow him there? What will I say? How will I respond? Maybe you're going to run into an enemy this week. How, what, how will I respond I guess the real challenge for us, folks, is when this is all done and we leave, that we act like we've been here. We act like we've been at this table. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you guide each one of us now individually into how we need to use these moments for confession, for praise, for thanksgiving, for for rededication, Maybe a little bit of all that. Holy Spirit, I would have no way of knowing what needs to happen in each individual in here. That's why I pause and look to you. And I ask on behalf of all of us, Holy Spirit, would you move through this room, move through our lives, and guide us so that not only is this a holy, sacred business moment, but it's a profitable moment, a meaningful moment in the eyes of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scary telling somebody that you're sorry. I mean, especially like if you're really in the wrong and they really could get you for it. I mean, what are they going to do? Are they going to get mad? Are they going to use that moment to humiliate you, to teach you a lesson, to get even, to get punishment? I mean, to actually go and tell somebody I I was in the wrong. Scary thing. Isn't it interesting, the person we be, should be most frightened in front of, the Lord God, is the one that we do not have to fear when we go to say we're sorry. His blood took care of that. First John 1 John 1.9, an incredible promise says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and, listen to this, cleanse us from all unrighteousness it it adds the word all do you know why because you and I can't confess all of our sins can't can't keep up with them all don't don't remember them at all gosh could you imagine have I confessed each one God says listen if you have confessed what you know you've sought to be honest with yourself you've sought to be honest with me and you've confessed what you know I won't only forgive what you know, I'll forgive all that you don't know, all that you've forgotten, all that you were not even aware of. I will cleanse you. And folks, he doesn't make that promise because we caught him on a good day. He doesn't make that promise because he, oh, you know, I know y'all did your best. Uh, My rules were probably too tough anyway. No, he can offer that forgiveness because it's been paid for. When Jesus said, take, this is my body, it's broken for you. And this wine represents my blood. By this, you come into a covenant relationship with my Father. By this, you're declared holy. By this, you're adopted as a child of God. By this, you will be a co-heir with me in eternity his work his promise his goodness remember that take and drink let's pray Father thank you is the the word of the week it seems so trite in light of what we've just looked at. We have seen beauty. We have seen grace. We have seen forgiveness. We have seen violence. We've seen wrath. We've seen justice. God, I'm thankful I can, I can climb under the blood of Christ and your wrath, your justice will pass over me. I say thank you on behalf of all of those in this room who have come under the blood of Christ and entered covenant relationship with you. Lord, it's, it's been good that we've gathered here today to sing, to worship, to give, to fellowship, to remember. God, as we leave here, help us to live like we've been here. Help us to, to think to act, to react, to talk like we've remembered how greatly we're loved and how greatly that was proven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.